Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books Network. I'm Sharika Crawford, your host. Today, I'm with Dr. Lucas Stanek. He's a senior lecturer at the Manchester School of Architecture at the University of Manchester in the United Kingdom. We're here to discuss his newest book, Architecture and Global Socialism, Eastern Europe, West Africa, and the Middle East in the Cold War, published by Princeton University Press in 2020. Lucas, welcome to New Books Network. Thank you, Sharika. Thank you for agreeing to do this interview. Thanks so much for having me. Let us begin with you and your background. Um, Where are you from and how did you become interested in architecture and architectural history? I am an architectural historian and so I'm very interested in buildings and in the users. But I also graduated in philosophy, which makes me very interested in concepts too. And In terms of where I come from, I had a rather peripatetic trajectory. So I studied in Poland, in Germany, in Switzerland. I did my um, PhD in the Netherlands. And then I held various academic positions in Paris and Zurich and Washington and Cambridge, Massachusetts, and now since eight years at the University of Manchester in the UK. With such an international, um, you know, lived experience, I'm curious to hear you explain um, what drew your attention to Eastern Europe and, and their engagements in West Africa and the Middle East in the mid to late 20th century. And if you also could tie that into what is your book about? Sure. So maybe I start with the latter. Uh, the book uh, shows how, during the Cold War, architects, planners, and uh, quite importantly, construction companies from socialist countries in Eastern Europe collaborated with their counterparts in West Africa and the Middle East. And so, um, in that sense, the book documents how the urbanization processes in a number of places in the global south were shaped by this collaboration between uh, what, what, what would be called at the time the second and the third world. And in particular, I focus on five cities in specific periods of the Cold War history, namely Accra during the first decade of independence under, under President Kwame Nkrumah, so between 1957 and 1956, and then Lagos in Nigeria in the 1970s in the wake of the civil war and during the oil boom, Baghdad in Iraq, from the 1960s to the 1980s, and finally Abu Dhabi in the United Arab Emirates and Kuwait City during the 1980s. And so the context of these processes was decolonization and the Cold War, uh, when the untangling of Western European empires opened the newly independent countries to resources and expertise beyond the West. And it was at the time that uh, many leaders in Africa and Asia exploited the rivalry between the United States, the Soviet Union, and the Allies. Some among them, such as Nkrumah in Ghana, and to some extent also the Ba'ath Party in Iraq, 
were attracted to the Soviet offer because they pursued the socialist model of development with the emphasis on state-centered industrialization, collectivization of agriculture, and uh, justice-oriented oriented welfare distribution. But it's quite important for my, for my book that these exchanges were not simply um, restricted to Soviet allies. Uh, because this collaboration with uh, uh, between the post-colonial countries and the socialist countries was also attractive to those Asian and African governments that did not follow the socialist model of development. And so, for example, I discussed Nigerian authorities and, and the Gulf, and these countries too welcomed professionals and companies from the socialist countries as a means to stimulate economic competition between uh, foreign enterprises in the country. And, and how did you come to um, become interested in these exchanges between um, these socialist, um, you know, um, Eastern European architects and their, you know, interactions and their work and collaborations um, in West Africa and the Middle East? Was it drawn from previous work? Uh, right, yes, the, the sort of anecdotal beginning for, of, of this, this research, which took over a decade, was my um, really very first, if you like, research project, which I started already as a student, uh, and that uh, project focused on Nova Huta, which is a socialist new town in post-war Poland, which was uh, constructed since the late 1940s, and that uh, Town was uh, designed by a large uh, design institute, which was called Miasta Project. And when I um, looked at its work, I realized that the following uh, large project by this design institute was the master plan of Baghdad in the 1960s. And I was, it was very intriguing to me. And um, I, I uh, you know, looked at it uh, in more depth. And then when I was offered to uh, curate an exhibition at the Museum of Modern Art in Warsaw, uh, and the topic was really left to me, I suggested that topic as the topic of the exhibition. And so the, the exhibition, which, which opened 10 years ago, was really quite relevant for me. It, start, it allowed me to gather first archival materials to conduct the first interviews, but it also made me realize how controversial this topic was in, in Poland, and this was only confirmed when I uh, started on working on this on this topic and uh, uh, traveled to other countries in the region, from Germany to Russia, from Hungary, Bulgaria, Romania, to the countries of the former Yugoslavia. Your work, um, in particular, speaks to multiple, um, you know, scholarly communities, and I was interested in hearing you discuss how your case studies, these five case studies, might help us to better understand 20th century architectural history, but also um, Cold War history. Yeah, that's right. I think that the, my immediate disciplinary concern is really the question of a, a possibility of a, of a more global history of architecture and perhaps more generally a more global history of urbanization. I think that today, there are two dominant frameworks for such histories. On the one hand, there is um, research which one can call perhaps post-colonial urbanism. So that's the research that's, that's research which studies the consequences of the colonial encounter and colonial violence for the production, appropriation, and imagination of spaces. 
and this research uh, centers on the dialectics of, of the colonized and the colonizers. On the other hand, there is something which perhaps can be called the word system theory approach, which studies the diffusion of architecture and construction technology from center to the periphery. And, and this approach centers of global capitalism assumes to be global centers of architectural expertise. And uh, both narratives uh, are, are largely shaping architectural history today, at least architectural history as it is produced in the, in the global north. Uh, but I think that it do not really give justice to the to the material uh, uh, and to the phenomena uh, that uh, happened that were happening in particular in the post-colonial period. And uh, you know the blind spots are very easily recognizable. For instance, uh, and that that uh, these blind spots can be seen even in the specific historiographies of specific uh, cities. Baghdad, for instance, uh, has received a lot of attention of architectural historians, uh, but, but uh, this attention is really focused on the work of Western architects in Baghdad in the 1950s, and then again in the 1980s. By contrast, the two decades between uh, uh, so the 1960s and the 1970s, which is the very period when Iraq was closely allied to socialist countries and had perhaps a more antagonistic relationship with the West, these two decades were largely omitted in Western scholars. Um, and so in both frameworks, uh, really the, the agency of the West is foregrounded or the, or the agency of the, of the global North at the expense of, the, of other actors, notably those from the global South. The, the agency is quite often reduced to that spectrum between reception and resistance. And uh, from my point of view, it's also perhaps quite useful to point out that in these two frameworks, uh, Eastern Europe doesn't doesn't really fit very well either to, to, these, to, to either of these two frameworks. Uh, it is not because colonialism or global capitalism were not relevant for this region, but, but rather because Eastern Europe cannot be easily assigned a specific role within uh, these two frames. So it can be seen or should be seen both as a colonizing and as a, a colonizer, and at the same time doesn't quite fit that opposition between centers and peripheries of world uh, capital. And so, in a way, the, the ambition of my, of my book is really to, to move uh, beyond these two uh, explanatory schemes and, and complicate them. And, and that complication is really you know, a response of, of, of what I have read in my archival materials and, and what, I, of what I've heard in my interviews. And so, for instance, uh, you know, when, when Eastern Europeans were arriving to Ghana and to Nigeria, they were very much complicated that dialectic between the European colonizer and the African colonizer. And their presence made it evident, you know, mainly evident to, to, to Ghanaians and to Nigerians that this dialectic, this dialectic was, was neither as comprehensive nor as encompassing as one, one, one might think. I, I, I absolutely um, felt that as I was reading that you were very much attuned to this kind of centrality of the agency of the West and your the, your work, your argumentation, your evidence really speaks to the ways that Eastern Europe as a region and these particular architects don't really fit into these frames. And, and also the, the, the architects, the, the political figures and leaders who are inviting and working with um, these Eastern European um, 
you know, architects and urban planners, whether in the Middle East or in, in West Africa, um, they themselves have um, a centrality of agency in, in, in this collaboration. And, and I was really excited um, to see this um, throughout your five case studies. I, I think that it might be helpful for our listeners um, that we talk a little bit about a concept um, that you um, explained very early on in your introduction. And your book in some ways hinges on this whole concept, this idea of um, socialist world making um, in order for um, readers to understand how the intervention of Eastern European socialist countries in West Africa and the Middle East triggered this dynamic that you just alluded to, um, this process of antagonism and difference. Could you help our listeners understand this concept of world making and how it's linked to your overarching argument? Um, yes. So, so this concept is inspired by uh, the writings of several authors, including uh, Henri Lefebvre, uh, Edouard Glisson, and others, not only Francophone uh, authors, also, for instance, uh, by scholars in um, urban studies today, such as Ananya Roy or Igwa Ong. Um, but starting with with the previous ones, uh, Lefebvre, who, who, as you know, was a French philosopher and sociologist, he uh, wrote in the 1970s about what he called mondialisation. Um, and this is a term that normally we would uh, translate as globalization into English. But uh, for Lefebvre, that meant more than, than what is usually associated with globalization. So more than deregulation of financial systems and industrialization uh, beyond the West, uh, increasing economic integration of global trade and new um, information communication technologies. He, he did mention all that, but also wrote about other things, about ecological threats on the planetary scale and about uh, what he, he, he termed as the right to the city movements on which were emerging on all continents. But the main point was that the word Lefebvre was um, really a dimension of practice and experience and a project. And so mondialisation was making was that process of the emergence of the world as a dimension of practice. And to my mind, this uh, thinking was advanced uh, by the Martinican poet and writer and theorist Edouard Glisson, who defined the world not by the logic of expansion, uh, which is very much like the core of an imperialist or colonialist imagination of the world, of what the world is, you know, the, the horizon is always a threat. And for Glisson, that was not the case. For, for you know, writing at the end of the Cold War, Glisson thought about uh, the world as a multiplication of possibilities of connection. And so following these authors and, and those whom I mentioned before in, in very contemporary debates in urban studies, uh, I'm really insisting in my book on the difference between world making and globalization and so um globalization in the sense of uh, in which the term was has been used since the 1970s in anglo-american scholarship is uh, just one among many possibilities of world making and uh, socialist internationalist and the non-allied movement were really other uh, possibilities and the, and the book is really about that well, how about we turn our attention now to a few of your, your cases. You have five cases, five um, cities that um, you examined, um, Accra, Lagos, Baghdad, um, 
you have uh, a Kuwait City and um, Abu Dhabi. And I think we should probably begin with your your first case study, um, which opens up with these Polish and Hungarian Yugoslav architects working in Kwame Nkrumah's Ghana in the late 50s and, and 60s. How should we come to understand um, Eastern European engagement um, with the first sub-Saharan African country to gain independence? Well, exactly. As you just said, this was uh, Ghana was a really important place in the 1960s, the late 1950s and the 1960s, and, and a, a place that was such an inspiring uh, place for so many people in Africa, but not only in, in Africa. And uh, also because of that symbolic meaning of, of, the, of the first uh, uh, African country in Sub-Saharan Africa, um, it, uh, in, in the first independent country, because of that symbolic meaning, um, uh, it was really also the focus of Soviet uh, policy and Soviet diplomacy. Uh, and for the Soviets, Ghana and uh, a number of other West African countries in the early 1960s were key places to promote the socialist development path. And so what this uh, chapter does is to discuss uh, those modes of adapting uh, the Soviet uh, construction industry, but also much broader economy and the vision of the society to a condition of tropical Africa and you know, very specifically Ghana and the number of Ghanaian uh, cities. Uh, this includes architecture, planning, construction technologies, uh, uh, but also uh, questions of ways of life, uh, uh, climate and social and economic conditions. Uh, only few of these investments were completed because they were interrupted by the coup which took in Krumah in 1966, but they were really important in Ghana and beyond. But uh, the, really the key point of uh, this chapter is uh, not that question of adaptation of, of uh, uh, the Soviet models, but rather the fact that um, this uh, architectural production in Krumagana was not at all dominated by the Soviet Union. Rather, in charge of this production were Ghanaian professionals, such as, for instance, the architect Vic Adegbite, and uh, Ghanaian institutions, such as uh, the Ghana National Construction Corporation, or GNCC, which is really uh, the, the, the focus of the chapter. And uh, the GNCC employed a number of Ghanaian architects, and Vika Degbita was, was the head architect there, but it uh, also employed a large number of uh, Eastern European architects, Polish, Hungarian, Yugoslav, Bulgarian, and so on. And their work uh, resulted, the collaboration resulted in such prominent ensembles uh, in Accra as, for instance, the International Trade Fair and a number of other really both landmark buildings but also much more modest housing neighborhoods, social facilities, uh, cultural facilities, uh, uh, health uh, institutions, and so on. And so what this chapter does is really to look at this co-production of uh, architecture by Ghanaians and foreigners and how they tapped into competing networks of architectural expertise and, and resources that intersected in Ghana in the 90s. Yes, I was I was very um, struck by um, the Ghanaian government's, I wouldn't say eagerness, but openness um, to these particular collaborations and the ways in which they still um, 
both mediated kind of the the larger geopolitics um, of Ghana at that time in the Cold War, but also the ways in which um, they, you know, really asserted their control over the the production um, of architectural. Um, you know, policies and, and products at that time. And I was hoping just as kind of a quick follow on um, that you might talk a little bit about um, something that you re- mentioned in your book, which was there was a, a sort of competition in Ghana. Um, you, you mean the the Hungarian and the Yugoslav and, you know, these kind of Soviet satellite places um, were on the scene, but you still had um, the British um, also trying to... Um, influence and and still you know take a slice of of what would be this kind of post-colonial um african state yeah, yes that's right i think uh, uh architecture is a, a very specific but i think a, a relevant uh, entrance point to 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 um discussing this this competition and uh, um i think you are really very very right to say uh about the the openness of the Ghanaian decision makers, I think it's important to keep in mind, and and I was reminded about this uh, over and over again, uh, that uh, these uh, um, Ghanaian uh, administrators and politicians and decision makers were uh, ha- had this often incredible experience uh, of cosmopolitanism. Right, the, most of them, of course, all of them, studied abroad, and quite often in not in one country, but in several, and so they they themselves had that 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 uh, experience of uh, perhaps uh, you know a, a relativistic perspective, the, the ability to compare and to choose from various uh, positions, and in and the whole chapter is really about that uh, possibility and that agency of uh, Ghanaian um, decision makers, for whom independence was really uh, quite often that. That experience of an opening towards the world, right? Where not uh, uh, where where Britain is no longer the only center of expertise, including architecture and planning and and uh, technological expertise, but this uh, this British expertise is now being juxtaposed with many other sources, and uh, there is there is really a a, a, a discussion, a debate, and and. Uh, uh, and quite often antagonism between these positions. That is that is liberating, but it is also uh, risky, right? Because the stakes are incredibly high. The, the stakes the stakes to to uh, create an independent country were in, incredibly high, and and uh, in many ways uh, the fate of Nkrumah is really the reminder of how high these stakes were. And so these discussions between and this very direct competition, sometimes you know, which takes takes place in in a form of of literally architectural competitions between various architects uh, located in Ghana and Accra at this time, this competition is really uh, uh, the reality of much of what is going on in architecture in Ghana in the 1960s. And uh, that included uh, architects coming from a number of places, from Eastern Europe, uh, from England, but also, for instance, uh, the uh, really fascinating, fascinating story of architects uh, coming from the Uni- United States, notably uh, African Americans who arrived to uh, Ghana to support Nkrumah. 
Your your next case focuses on another West African country, that of Nigeria, um, in the preceding decade in 1970s. And I think our listeners might be interested in hearing how um, these Eastern European architects and urban planners, um, how their experiences in Nigeria um, differed um, from that of Ghana. And then how did Nigerians view these architectural exchanges? Uh, that's right. Uh, so Ghana was uh, really, really different from Nigeria. In difference to uh, Ghana, Nigerian elites were generally hostile towards the socialism, and they were not attracted by uh, socialist development path. Rather, the presence of Eastern Europeans in Nigeria resulted from attempts of the federal government to, diversi- to, to diversify foreign actors, to um, stimulate competition between them. And um, that that had a lot of uh, consequences, of course, for the way uh, Eastern European and the uh, Nigerian counterparts were. So, for instance, what was very clear was that the, the, the aim of uh, the work in Nigeria was not at all the, you know, the implementation of a socialist path of development. And that meant that uh, uh, the Polish, Yugoslav, Bulgarian, Hungarian uh, Soviet architects who were, who were there saw for other ways of making sense uh, for, for the task at hand. And this is, this is really the, the, the core of that, of that chapter. So that the, the chapter is about how Eastern Europeans and uh, West Africans, Nigerians in this case, uh, imagined the worlds which they shared uh, in a very speculative and sometimes experimental Manner. And uh, I argue that, that, that uh, in looking for those shared worlds, they pointed out at the shared historical experience, namely the experience of foreign domination uh, over Eastern Europe and over Sub-Saharan Africa during the long 19th century. And that history of domination contributed in both regions to economic backwardness and to cultural dependency. Quite importantly, this is not just a question of legitimizing the work or the presence and the work of uh, Eastern Europeans in Nigeria. What was at stake here is something much more specific. It was really about the activation, the reactivation of architectural tools from Eastern European architectural culture. These tools had been implemented precisely in response to that predicament of foreign domination a predicament that was ostensibly uh, shared by Eastern Europeans and West Africans. And so I'm, I'm arguing these by means of five, or by means of three case studies. Uh, first, uh, a Hungarian plan for uh, Calabar, uh, which really mobilized the experience of developing rural Hungary in the post-war period. Uh, secondly, um, uh, Polish-Nigerian survey of vernacular architecture in Nigeria, which uh, went back to the drawings and surveying techniques uh, that were employed in interwar Poland uh, in uh, rural areas. And finally, uh, the case study of the International Trade Fair in Lagos, which is uh, uh, Yugoslav and Nigerian uh, design. And so what this chapter shows is how Eastern Europeans instrumentalize these historical analogies between Eastern Europe and West Africa. But this is also uh, uh, about 
the danger of such analogies and perhaps the limits of such uh, uh, analogies, which then uh, refer to the ambiguities of Eastern Europe's own colonial history. That comes back to something I said before, right? That uh, Eastern Europe was uh, clearly a region that was um, arguably colonized by external empires in the 19th century and perhaps most evidently during uh, World War II. But at the same time, this is a region which has its own colonial fantasies and even colonial practices, including the so-called internal colonization in interwar Poland. And so the travel to Nigeria by, by the Poles, by Hungarians and by others confronted them with these ambiguities of their own colonial history. Yeah, I think this chapter um, with Nigeria really draws out that that line of argumentation that you've mentioned earlier um, in our interview, and they um, are kind of a nice contrast, um, the Ghana and the Nigeria um, chapters when when read together. But your book also, um, you know, looks at the Middle East, and so you move away from West Africa after your chapter on Nigeria, and you turn your attention um, first to the case of Iraq with Baghdad. And um, for me, I'm not familiar with um, Middle Eastern history or this particular part of its architectural history. Um, I found it really fascinating. In some ways, it um, your discussion on Ghana really was a nice um, setup because Iraq um, also developed a sort of a, a state based on a, a socialist system. And I was thinking it might be interesting for you to kind of open that conversation with um, a, a question or answering a question such as um, what aspirations and, and then the challenges did Iraqi officials and urban planners um, have in their um, attempt to, you know, collaborate with um, and engage um, Eastern European um, architects and urban planners? And then how did um, the Iraqi government approach this engagement um, from the Soviet bloc? Right. Um, yes, this is, this is uh, a chapter which shows uh, how uh, Iraqi uh, administrators and decision makers and, and professionals uh, and these uh, these categories kind of merge quite often, right? Because uh, you know, major architects quite often become uh, important officials in various ministries and like that. So how how uh, these uh, leaders in uh, Baghdad uh, uh, worked with uh, uh, Eastern Europe, with the Soviet Union, and other Eastern European countries in order to pursue a particular uh, vision of modernization and development. And uh, the, 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 what I focus on in this, in this chapter uh, are um, differences uh, between the various political economies that were at stake. And, and I, one of the kind of key arguments of the chapter is to show how uh, decision makers and managers and professionals in Iraq exploit the differences between the emerging global market of design and construction services and the political economy of state social. So I'm sometimes going into, into some details by discussing such a specific aspect of uh, state socialist political economy as, as the inconvertibility of uh, currencies, uh, which is part of the, of the larger principle of the state monom monopoly on foreign trade, uh, but also the principle of Balsa. So the exchange of goods for goods without the mediation of money. And for my purposes, the particularly you know, fascinating 
uh, example is is what can be called petrol barter. So the so the exchange of crude oil for, for instance, the buildings. And uh, the chapter shows how these transactions facilitated specific design methodologies and and uh, technologies and even progress uh, in uh, Iraq and and the region. And so this this uh, argument is developed by looking at the master plans of Baghdad, which were delivered by Miasa Project, so the very office I, I mentioned at the beginning, uh, but also the general housing program for Iraq, which was a huge housing program you know, for the whole country that uh, was developed by uh, uh, the Iraqis and by Miasa Project uh, in the late 1970s. But I'm also looking at the case study which uh, admittedly is a rather uh, unusual for an architectural historian, namely uh, I'm looking at the industrial slaughterhouse in Baghdad, uh, which was designed by East Germans and constructed by Romanians. And I think uh, this is a good case study precisely to look how, how uh, the, uh, the, the, the collaboration in this triangle, so the Iraqis, the East Germans and the Romanians work, and how, uh, what was the division of labor, uh, and you know what were the challenges, what were the advantages of this of this complex of this complex setup, and uh, it also uh, look and allows me to look more critically at, at let's say you know official discourse of uh, state socialist countries, question of solidarity, question of, of global division of labor, what they call the global socialist division of labor, questions of common complementarity between uh, the various economies of state socialist countries and so on. Uh, namely, that case study very clearly shows that uh, uh, much more than coordination and collaboration between socialist countries, uh, uh, there, there was a lot of competition between them. And that is also very much the case in the final chapter of the book uh, about uh, the gut. Lucas, I'm, I'm curious, um, was your chapter on um, Baghdad. Did you write that first? It, it seemed to be, um, I mean, that the time coverage of these collaborations, engagements were um, very lengthy from the from the fifties, you know, um, for almost twenty or two decades. And then, it the ways in which you were able to um, kind of draw out this, you know, these projects of modernization, and and then the ways in which um, the collaborations went beyond just coordinating, but, you know, rethinking the division of labor. Um, was this one of your early um, chapters that you wrote for the book? Um, yes, that, that was one of the first to, uh, for me to study. Uh, but I studied um, really uh, at the time when I, when I began the project, I really studied the Polish engagement. So I... Uh, uh, really interviewed a, a number of people who worked in, in Baghdad, and I managed to interview a number of uh, Iraqi architects, planners, and, and professors, uh, because that was another big part of this engagement that uh, uh, Polish architects and planners also taught in uh, various architectural schools in, in, in Baghdad and in the same shape, the new generation of Koshe, together with many others, the future generation of Iraqi architects. So that was really the beginning, but uh, uh, and so in a sense, you are right, this was, this was my first chapter, but uh, at the same time, it was also to some extent my last chapter, because I, this was a chapter I fundamentally rewrote after, after many years of, of working on this book, 
because one of the key uh, ambitions of the book is is uh, really not to have that kind of uh, duality, that kind of you know bipolarity, meaning you know the Poles on the one hand and on the one hand and the Iraqis on the other. I was really interested in uh, having a more comparative perspective on socialist countries, and this is why I uh, selected that uh, Romanian. East German uh, Iraqi case study, uh, and again, of course, the polls were still there, and so were many others. But uh, that allowed me to to have a, a more comparative view on what was going on in Baghdad at the time. Your research um, is is tremendous. Um, our our listeners cannot fully appreciate um, via this interview the voluminous blueprints and and photographs and city planning maps and um, the interviews that you had to to conduct across these five case studies. Could you talk a bit about your research process and how you came to gather um, the source material to write this impressive study? Um, yes, well, thank you. That, that, that's, but that's why the images are really my key sources uh, and they are key sources for architectural historians. And in, this, in the case of this book, uh, they included all sorts of images that uh, included blueprints and diagrams and engineering drawings and master plans and urban norms and urban standards, photographs of models of buildings and, and of course, photographs of finished buildings. And uh, so they were really, really crucial. Uh, and uh, I complemented them with other types of sources, such as trade agreements, minutes of discussions, reports from the construction site, and various uh, professional publications. Uh, notably, uh, what was really crucial for me were professional journals, sometimes fairly ephemeral, not only from Eastern Europe, but also from West Africa and the, and the Middle East. Uh, and um, in addition to, to that, I also used daily newspapers, which helped me to, to fill in some of the missing uh, gaps. So the majority of the, of the images that are published in the book were never published before and because of the large format of the book and and really i have to say the excellent graphic editing that was done by princeton university press the documents reproduced in the book notably the master plan can be used by other scholars because they are you know legible enough including the original descriptions and uh, i gathered these materials from various archives public institutional and private um, the private archives included national and municipal archives, uh, and the institutional archives were uh, those of design institutes and, and construction firms, notably those in, in West Africa and the Middle East. Some of them were still still uh, working today. Uh, I also consulted archives of important institutions, such as, for instance, the Kwame Nkrumah University of Science and Technology in Kumasi in, in Ghana. Uh, the challenge of these archives, uh, in particular when ar architectural documentation was concerned, was that they were quite often incomplete, quite often fragmented. And so this is why it was really crucial for me to gain access to private archives of architects and planners and engineers who worked uh, uh, in the countries I, I wrote about. And I was, uh, I have to say, I was really lucky and fortunate to, to get access to uh, many such archives in Eastern Europe, but also uh, to archives of architects from Ghana, from Nigeria, Iraq, the UAE, and Kuwait. And uh, I'm really very grateful to, to them and to the families 
who made this incredible material available to me. No, I mean, it, it's, it's, it's tremendous. Um, as someone who's not an architectural historian, I, I, I could appreciate um, the tremendous effort it must have taken you to um, acquire um, so much of this important material, um, which would be important in the um, understanding and the analysis of the line of argument you wanted to make about these architectural mobilities. Lucas, I'm, I'm curious to hear what currently um, are you working on? Do you have a small or, or large project underway? Uh, well, I'm currently working uh, with the Canadian Center for Architecture uh, as part of the larger Centering Africa project. It is, uh, it is a, a project which is funded by the Mellon Foundation. And uh, I'm really excited about this. My contribution is focused on uh, the question of Africanization of Ghanaian architecture. As you know, um, Africanization is a highly controversial term because it was introduced by the colonial regimes, but it was also a term that was used by, by the, by the post-colonial government. And so, uh, I, I'm really intrigued what Africanization of architecture meant and its dynamics, meaning the emergence and emancipation of, of indigenous actors in design, construction, planning, administration, and, and education in, in Ghana. And so I, I hope that um, in some years I will be able to publish on this. Well, I look forward to to reading um, your work, um, particularly as it relates to uh, you know um, Ghana and its architectural um, history and legacy. Lucas, I want to thank you for coming on New Books Network. Thank you so much, Rika. You can find a link to Architecture and Global Socialism, Eastern Europe, West Africa, and the Middle East in the Cold War on our New Books Network webpage. Until next time.